Stay with us immediately following today's Crosswalk for this week's Ask the Pastor segment. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. No matter what happens in my life, I belong to Him. God values me and He cherishes me and He, and he holds me in such worth that He would shed His blood for me. Have you ever faced times in your life when you really needed to be reminded that God was in charge? Have you ever looked at your circumstances and wondered whether God would be able to bring you through them? No matter what it is, no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, hardship, whatever the struggle is, physical, emotional, financial, whatever it is, that all of this stuff, that all this life contains, and all the hardships that it is, grace to you and peace. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Toward the end of the first century, believers in Jesus Christ were facing a serious problem. The emperor of Rome was demanding that everyone acknowledge that he was a god. Followers of the one true God couldn't do that. As a result, severe and brutal persecution came against the Christians. Those followers of Jesus needed to be reminded that their God was bigger than Rome, bigger than the emperor, bigger than their trials. The churches that John writes to 2,000 years ago, they need it to be encouraged. They're about to face severe persecution in their life. I mean, it was going to be tough, and they need it to be encouraged. Life was hard 2,000 years ago. Of course, it's, it's not like today. You know, of course, today life isn't, it, life, is, life is easy, right? Life is hard. No, it was true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. Life is hard. Today, we continue our series entitled, The Revelation, and Pastor Clay is taking us to John's opening greeting in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 of the book of Revelation. We hope you'll follow along in your Bible and that you find this study encouraging to you in your circumstances. We're just in the second week, and we're still so much in, in the very preliminary stages of, of this, this book, this, this revelation, this unveiling, as we talked about last week, called Revelation. But today, we're looking at four, verses, four, four through eight, verses four through eight, and, and I think in there what we're going to find is that John's opening this letter, he's really, he's really trying to encourage those that he's writing to. And remember, he's writing to specific and, and real uh, literal people, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but he's also, because it's, it's the Word of God, it's carrying on down through the ages and, and, and down and in, right into, down to January 10th, 2010, and the application for our lives. You and I probably need some encouragement today. So if you brought a copy of God's Word with you, you can open it to Revelation chapter 1. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, it's going to be up on the screen as well. But boy, I want to say again, I say this from time to time, if you've got, a, if, if you've got your own Bible, bring it with you. I, I hope that you feel like that it was used, and uh, especially as we walk through this book of the Bible, you're going to want to take some notes. So that's why we provide you an outline on the background, uh, on, the, on the back side of the information sheet, and it really is just an outline. Uh, Cindy tries to leave some spaces in there so that, because I'll talk about a lot of stuff today. Not only the stuff that's right there on the outline, but a lot of stuff. And you may want to jot something down that strikes you or something. I encourage you, write it in, in the margins of your Bible. Write it on that outline. Start you a little notebook so that you'll have that for the book of Revelation. But you might, uh, you might enjoy it. By the way, you have little desks beside you. I, I haven't mentioned that in a while. But it just flips out and folds down. Um, and you can use that if, if you want. I, I think it's nice. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 4, thank you, thanks for being here today, appreciate it. John, 
to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I am. Behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Last week we discussed just an, just an overview of the book of Revelation, and I gave you a, an outline that, that you'll be able to follow as you, as you go on through uh, this study. Today, we're walking right through these verses, and, and at times it may seem a little tedious to you. I want you to, to know this, that as we get on into the book, we'll probably be biting off larger chunks at a time. It probably won't be quite as, as much detailed as it is today, but, but I'm really setting the table here for this thing because I think that's what John's doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his letter. And so I hope that you find what we talk about today is profitable and encouraging uh, to you. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, uh, we talked about that last week. The unveiling. This, this recorded series of events that God desires for his children to know. And he begins, and we're going to jump right into it. John uh, chapter 1 and verse 4. And we're just going to walk through this. Talk about it some this morning. John opens up. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now we already established last week that the John who is writing here is John the Apostle, almost universally accepted. This was John the Apostle, one of the original 12, you know, part of the posse that rode with Jesus, so to speak. He, that's one of those guys. He's an old man by now. We're going to see next week, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, but he is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, when you and I hear the word Asia, we think what? China, Japan, we think of the continent of Asia. That's not really what John means here. John is referring to what was known as the province of Asia. The Roman Empire, remember, they're ruling the world at this time. Rome rules the world. And Rome has divided their empire into provinces. And one of those provinces was the Asian province, which more properly would be, today would be considered uh, more of, of Asia Minor. And he's writing to the seven churches that are specifically located in the western part of Asia Minor that kind of borders the Aegean Sea up in here and the Mediterranean Sea down in here. It's up in this area that he's talking about. You can see Greece and and, uh, Asia Minor is back over there. So John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now we, we know biblically that there were at least three other churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time of this writing. There's probably more than that, but we know there was at least three. Colossae, Heropolis and Troas, we know from Scripture that there's at least three others. So why does John only write to the seven churches? Quite honestly, it's been debated probably since the time the letter was first written. Why does John only address seven? If there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor, why does he only address seven? You ready? I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. Why does he do? I, I don't know. We do know that. Here's what we know. We do know that seven is a prominent number in Scripture, uh, particularly in the book of Revelation. Seven is a number that, that appears a number of times throughout Scripture, and as I said, particularly in the book of Revelation. Seven is the number that is sometimes referred to, maybe you've heard it referred to this way, as God's number. You ever heard that? Oh, seven, that's God's number. And people are like, well, why is it called God's number? I guess God likes seven. I, no, uh, <laughs> primarily the reason is uh, Genesis chapter 2, we find in Scripture it says God created the heavens and the earth for six days. God labored, and on the seventh day God rested, or, and it doesn't mean he was tired, it just means God ceased from his labor on the seventh day. So seven has come to, to mean completion or perfection, that number itself, it, it, at least in Scripture, means completion or perfection, and that's why it's, it's called God's number, because God is, is perfection and, and completion. And so, and so seven plays a prominent part in, in Scripture, that's for sure. So maybe that's part of the reason why this is specifically addressed to these seven churches. There are people who believe, you probably won't really care about this, but I'll tell you anyway, um, there are people that believe that these seven churches, and we'll get into next week who these churches are, uh, or the next couple weeks, that these seven churches are actually, that even though that they were literal, actual churches, they also represent the entire church throughout the age. In other words, when he, first, when he begins to write to the church at Ephesus, that the, that the characteristics of the church in Ephesus uh, looked very familiar to the to the very early church, and then right on through and right on through, and when he gets to the, to the last church, that, that really is a picture of the, of the church that's in existence at the very end of time. There may be, may be some truth to that, but this much we can say with certainty, that there are characteristics that, that John is going to get into about these churches that show up in the life of the church today, for sure. Here's his greeting. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. It was a pretty common greeting. You find it a few places in Scripture. And John says, grace to you and peace. It's used in Scripture. It was probably used just commonly in, in society in that day. I, I don't know. But you and I don't need to run past it too fast. Because I'm going to tell you something. I don't know of anything. I don't know of anything that anybody needs in their life more than grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace, uh, I would say that that's, uh, grace is, is our position. Grace is our position in God. You and I are in grace as a result of what Christ has done for us. I said earlier, Romans 3.23 and, and Romans 3.10 and other passages make it clear that all of us have, have violated God's standards. We've come short of God's mark and we need God's grace in our life. So, so grace is our position, and as a result of that, peace is therefore then our possession. Peace with God and peace through God. As a result of the fact that we have this standing with God because of His grace, because we stand in His grace, we have the peace of God. And, and let me say this. First and foremost, peace with God. Because I honestly believe that you can't ever really truly experience the peace of God in your life, or the peace in your life, until you have peace with God in your life. A relationship with Jesus Christ that comes to me. And, and, I, and the truth is, I'm, I was at enmity 
The Bible tells me that, that I was at war, basically, with God before I came into a relationship with him, before God's grace. So to have peace with God, which then gives me the opportunity to have the peace of God, peace in my life, peace that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling within me that equips me and strengthens me and prepares me and encourages me for whatever the world throws at me. Grace and peace to you. I don't know of anything that anybody needs in their lives more today than grace and peace. I don't know where you are in your life, and I, and I don't know what's going on certainly in all your lives. Some of your lives I, I know, may know some things you may have shared with me, but, uh, but, but I know that all of our lives at times have struggles and difficulties. And to know that the grace of God brings the peace of God that brings strength and encouragement to my life makes a huge difference, I think. John says, and remember he's writing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I've already said that it's, that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. But he says, grace to you and peace. Now watch the description of who it comes from because that's just as important. He says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Not going to beat this all day, but let me just say this. Most biblical scholars believe this is a reference to God the Father because of the eternal association of the text, uh, the way it's going, and because of what follows in the text. And we'll, we'll see that in just a minute. But it's a reference to God the Father. Remember, we're, we're, we're this, we have this belief system in this triune Godhead, Father and Son and, and Holy Spirit. And, and John first says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So it's a reference to God the Father. And uh, hold on to that idea of, of who is and who was and who is to come. It's going to show up again. And then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, now, who is this? Who's these seven spirits who are before his throne? Well, that's another one of those things that have been speculated about for uh, a long time. What is, what is John? I, I read that some people have, uh, have speculated that these are seven uh, particularly honored angels that are gathered around the throne. I can't definitively say whether it is or is not. I can't tell you this. I don't think it fits the context as, as we go on through here. I don't think it fits the context of what he's describing. And again, most scholars believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Not to seven different spirits, to the Holy Spirit. Which is why, if you have a Bible with you today, I'll bet probably that first S in spirit is capitalized, is it? Because the, the, the translators, they understood that this is a reference to the, the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits probably is a, is a reference to, most people think, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which speaks of, of the, if you will, the primary gifts of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is, is these things that, that Isaiah talks about. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and you can go back and read that at some time. But that it's really a reference to the Holy Spirit and, and the gifts or the attributes that he has. So, what have we got so far? Grace and peace from the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, more than likely the, the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. So, you have in this introduction all three persons of the triune Godhead who show up in this in John's introduction. Grace to you and peace from the Father, the one who is and was and is to come, from the Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. Now, sitting on the edge of your seats, right? 
Watch this. Watch this explanation. Oh, how did I think of it today? Oh, yeah. Look at what, what, I, what I would describe as, as a resume. Look at Jesus' resume. Because I don't want to call it a description because next week we're going to get into a physical description of Jesus, and it's awesome. But, but today, it's kind of like a resume of Jesus Christ. Because he just says his name, and Jesus Christ. But now listen to what he says. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. John calls him the faithful witness. I believe, or, or I look at that as that is, that is his purpose. Uh, faithful witness. Witness, in the Greek, the Greek word is martis, from where we get our word martyr. A martyr is a person who suffers or gives their life as a result of their testimony. Jesus was the faithful witness. He was the one who gave his life for the, for the good news of salvation, the gospel of salvation, that hope has come to mankind. He even came and declared for today is born unto you in the, save, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was, that was the message. That was his life which culminated at the cross. It, it, it's, he's the faithful witness. That was his purpose. The firstborn of the dead. Got his purpose. Firstborn of the dead. That is his position. I'm on this P kick today, aren't I? I don't know. But that's his position. Firstborn, uh, that, that phrase, firstborn of the dead doesn't in this sense mean the first one to die in, in, in its context. He'd be the first one to die and, and rise again. Jesus wasn't the first one to do that. Uh, uh, Elijah had raised somebody from the dead. Jesus had, had raised somebody from the dead a couple different times. Uh, Jesus wasn't the first one to die and rise from the grave, although he was the first one to die, rise, and not die again. All those other people, they did die again. So in a sense, Jesus was the first born of the dead that, that never died again. But in this, in this uh, sense, firstborn of the dead is better thought of as, uh, as preeminent. It, it's his position. It's preeminent, it's primary, it's chief, or it's head. He is the chief. He is the head. It's his position. It's a pretty good resume, right? This greeting, grace, and peace. All right, who's bringing this, who's bringing this grace and peace? Well, the Father is bringing it. The Spirit's bringing it. And Jesus Christ is bringing it. And we've already seen his purpose. We've seen his, posi- his, uh, his, his position. Firstborn, primary, preeminent. And the text says he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's his power right there. A king had, had sovereign rule over his kingdom, right? He goes, he goes beyond his borders he, he, don't have, he don't have diddly. Uh, you might have a relationship with him. Might, they might work out some sort of peace accord or, or whatever else. But, but he's king in his realm, right? Within, within the borders of his country, uh, does he have the right to say what is and what is not? And everything within that realm belongs to him because he is the king. John says that Jesus Christ is literally the king of kings. That he's the ruler over all. All realms all kingdoms, he's all power over all powers. That's his power. I don't know if you do this or not. When I read Scripture, a lot of times I, I, like, I, I begin to think about where it's going. And by that, what I mean is I, I 
I don't read into the text. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be right. But I begin to, to sense what the writer is thinking about and where the writer is going emotionally as he writes it. And as, as John is writing this, I really get the sense that this is moving towards something, that, that John's building this thing up. He's, he, he says, man, he, he's the faithful witness. He's, he's the firstborn of the, of the dead. He's, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's writing, but if you were speaking it out loud, I'd just, I mean, he'd be like a, a good old-fashioned preacher. He'd be getting louder and louder. He'd probably be breaking out in a sweat and pulling out his handkerchief by now. To him who loves us, watch this, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom. He's made us to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. You know what that is? That's his possession. We're his possession. You and I who have come by faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ. John says that, that, that this is what Christ has done. He's, he, he loves us and he released us from our sins by his blood. And because of his substitutionary death, he has made us then to be... Notice the, the present tense, to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. In, in the Old Testament times, in the old, old times, a priest could enter into the, into the holy place, a priest could enter into the presence of God only after he had gone through a ceremonial washing, only after he had been cleansed ceremonially, and then, and then only could he come into God's presence. And what John is saying, because you and I have been cleansed, Spiritually speaking, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity, as the writer of Hebrews says, to come boldly into his throne room. Not boldly because of anything that we've done, but because, because his sacrifice was so sufficient and so total that you and I have total access when we're in right relationship with God to him to be able to come into his presence. That's this, that's this one that John says, grace to you and peace. That's the God that he's describing. You and I are his possession. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he reminds them, you're not your own. No, no, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Now, can I tell you this? And I know I got I to move along here, but can I tell you this? Because when we say that, and it's very true, it's obviously it's, it's biblical, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. It seems like that our minds, that the first thing our minds does is, okay, I understand what that means. That means I got to do what Jesus says. That's true. I got, I got to follow. I got to follow Jesus. I, I need to submit to His will for my life because because I'm not my own. I belong to Him. I'm I'm bought with a price. And we tend to to to. It seems like we just tend to go towards the servant aspect of that 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 we're that we belong to Him, which is true. But do you ever think about the other end of it? I belong to Him. I belong to Him. Whatever comes into my life, whatever trials or struggles or difficulties or problems that I have that come to me, they belong to him because I belong to him. Do you understand what I'm saying? That if you just begin to think differently about this thing, begin to say, yes, uh, I should be submitting my life to him. I need to follow God's will for my life. But also, no matter what happens in my life, I belong to him. God values me and he cherishes me and he, and he holds me in such worth that he would shed his blood for me. I belong to him. That's the God who says grace to you. Peace. And then, and then comes verse 7. Now verse 7 strikes me as odd. Because it seems almost out of place. 
Because I, I don't know if you thought about it when we read it just a moment ago, but John gives away the ending. <laughs> John gives away the ending in verse 7. Can I tell you that? I know he's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's also John, and God used his, John's faculties and his personality and all that stuff. It's almost like John, he's just writing about this God, and he's the one who is and was and is to come. He's the faithful witness. He's the seven spirits. He's, he's the one who shed his blood. And, so and it's like he can't even contain himself anymore. And he says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. <laughs> oh, oh, that was supposed to be at the end of the book. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. John's like, John's like, yeah, I hope none of y'all like this. Yeah, yeah, like, you're going to see a movie, and somebody wants to tell you the movie before you go to see it. I have two words for you. Shut up. <laughs> Don't tell me the movie. And the worst ones are the ones that sit beside, they go with the movie, and they sit beside, oh, what, 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 what's, what's this? He's going to do this. Just what, John's like, he let the cat out of the bag. It's like it's like uh, picking up a, a mystery novel, and you open the and you open the first you open the first page, and it says the butler did it, and then the story starts. <laughs> John didn't really let the cat out of the bag, because the truth is the Old Testament prophets and most of the New Testament writers, all of them, had been writing about this this coming king who had set up his kingdom, and and John didn't really let the cat out of the bag. I think he just got excited, and he just started talking. He's coming, he's coming in the clouds. That phrase, by the way, coming in the clouds, fits perfectly with Daniel's uh, prophecy, Daniel chapter uh, 7. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. By the way, it also matches perfectly Jesus' description of his coming in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Uh, Those who uh, pierced him, kind of a puzzling uh, little part in there. How can those who pierced him see him coming since, since, they, uh, since they're clearly already dead. The people that crucified him, the Roman soldiers and, and certainly the Jews that put him to death, they're long since dead. So how can those who pierced him uh, see him? Remember, one of, my, one of the guiding principles of interpretation of Scripture is to use other Scripture to interpret it. What, what John's referring here to is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people uh, who, who rejected him and who put him to death. They someday will see him. That's pretty clear from uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David. Listen to the similarity between what I just read. I will pour out on the house of David. That's a reference to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But I did want to say uh, this morning that what, what John is referring to. And what these other scripture references are referring to. Is something that's, that, that is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is different from another event that is known as the rapture of the church. They are two totally different events in in my understanding of of eschatological, of end times events. They are two separate events separated by a time span of seven years. Referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he actually returns and sets his kingdom up on earth. 
And John says, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Again, not for certain, but most biblical scholars believe that this is now Jesus himself talking. After this introduction of him, this is Jesus himself talking. If you happen to have a red-letter Bible, do you know what a red-letter Bible is? Red-letter Bible, if it's red-letter Bible... Yeah, it used to be the only thing. Red letter Bible. If you didn't have a red letter Bible, man, it wasn't a real Bible. But um, not all translations have red letters. But if it's red letter, it's supposed to be the words of Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible with you, I'll bet verse 8 is in red. It's because the translators understood that this was Christ himself talking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Alpha, first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega, last letter in the Greek alphabet. What Christ is saying is, I am the all in all. I am the beginning and I am the end. See how this thing is where we moved from? This general introduction, this greeting, and this building of this, who this, this character is, this resume of this person. And he says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, says the Lord God. And there it is. And who is and who was and who is to come. There it shows up again. In verse 4. Almost certainly refers to God the Father. In verse 8, almost certainly refers to Jesus Christ, showing the equality within the Godhead. And then John concludes that little section. Verse 8 is really kind of a conclusion, even though it's not the end of the chapter. And he says, the Almighty. Ten times, by the way, ten times the word Almighty is used in the New Testament. Nine of those are in the book of Revelation. It's not by accident, because what we're going to see throughout the rest of this book is what I consider the big picture biblical principle today. And it's simply this. Everything's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. No matter what comes into your life, no matter what problems you have, no no matter what issues you have to deal with, whether they're physical or spiritual or or emotional or financial or work-related, no matter what happens, I think... What, I, what I'm pulling from verses 4 through 8 is it's going to be all right because this, this is the person who says to us grace to you and peace. Listen, if I, say, if I say to Chris, if I say, Chris, grace to you and peace, well, that's nice. But I can't really do anything about grace and peace being in his life. So if he goes out and runs into a buzzsaw of, of, of problems, and not anything I can do that. But when God speaks into his life or your life or my life and says grace to you and peace, and this is who I am that's speaking these words, then you can say, you know what, it's going to be all right. God is on his throne. We're going to see more of that next week. God is on his throne. I, I, I don't know in 2010 what all is going to happen in any of our lives, in the life of this church and in the individuals who make up the life of this church. I don't know what all's going to be happening to us, but I'm telling you this, it's going to be all right. Be encouraged. Remember, the church, the churches that John writes to 2,000 years ago, they need it to be encouraged. They're about to face severe persecution in their life. I mean, it was going to be tough, and they need it to be encouraged. I mean, it's, it, life was hard. Life was hard 2,000 years ago. Of course, it's, it's not like today. You know, of course, today life isn't, it, life, is, life is easy, right? Life isn't hard. No, it was true 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. Life is hard. And, and, and no matter what it is, no matter what you face, no matter what you go through, hardship, whatever the struggle is, physical, emotional, financial, uh, marital, whatever it is, 
that all of this stuff, that all this life contains, and all the hardships that it is, grace to you and peace. From Him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood, and He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. It's going to be all right. What a powerful reminder of the God we trust in. At times, it feels as if the enemy is throwing everything he's got at us, including the kitchen sink. But today, we heard Pastor Clay remind us that the God we worship is almighty. His grace and peace uphold us and strengthen us for the journey we're on. One thing's for sure, if God is on our side, it's going to be all right. We're glad you've joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you at Cross Culture Church. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. It's Q&A time. Each week we're going to take and answer a question. Um, And the question is... All bets are off. Anything you want to ask. If the Bible deals with it, we want to deal with it. Okay? That's, that's kind of the deal. If the Bible doesn't deal with it, we're probably not going to deal with it. But uh, if the Bible does, then, then we want to. And so, I've said this before. Sometimes some of the questions, some people may, well, I don't know. Can we talk about that kind of stuff in church? We'd better talk about that kind of stuff in church. If the Bible addresses it, ladies and gentlemen, we need to address it. It's important that we understand. What does God say about it? Because, you know, we've all got, well, well I think this. You ever, y'all, you ever do that? Well, I think this. Or I feel like. Or, I, you know what? In the end, it, it only matters what God says. Right? Right? Which, which brings us to the question today. By the way, the cards are in. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, they're out there at the uh, information, or actually at the table just outside the doors. When you go out the doors of the auditorium, uh, just to the left is a table has, has 
uh, offering envelopes and the seven bookmarks and, uh, and Q&A cards, all those things. You can pick those things up. So if you've got a question, uh, what does the Bible say about You can put it on there. You can drop it in the offering box. Each week I look at those and I'll pick one out. I did have three questions this past week, so we're picking up. It was just one last week. Uh, Q&A this week is, here is the question. What does the Bible say about sexual orientation? <laughs> can we talk about that in church? Yes. Um, now, uh, now, let me tell you this. Uh, the, the question, actually, I kind of rephrased it a little bit. Actually, as the question came to me was, what is your church's position on sexual orientation? And uh, let me just, just say this. The reason I, I rephrased it is because, number one, um, uh, we're, we're dealing with what does the Bible say about, and that's what we want to focus on. And number two, uh, like I just said, in the end, all that matters is what God says. Now, now don't get me wrong. It, it is important to know what a church's position is, where they stand doctrinally and theologically and, and all those kinds of things practically. But ultimately, it only matters what, what God says. And, and that, that brings us to this question today. What does the Bible say about sexual orientation? Uh, the gist of what the, what the person was getting at in the question, I think, was uh, homosexual behavior or a person who has homosexual tendencies. What, is, what does the Bible say about that? Well, let's just, let's just talk about it. I've only got a few minutes, and I don't deal with it in depth, but want to deal with it to some extent anyway. Let me say this. First and foremost, we believe that God's Word is authoritative, uh, that, it is, that it is absolute and that it is truthful and applicable for every single area of our lives. We believe that, that it's the standard in which we can be uh, guided, and, and we use it that way. Having said that, one of the things that God's Word teaches us is that every person is of, is of infinite value and worth to God. Every person is valuable to God. Having said that, God's Word also teaches that God loves everyone and desires a relationship with everyone. I truly believe that, that God desires to reach out and touch every single person's life. Having said that, the Bible also teaches us that all of us have sinned. We have all come short of God's standard. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, along with various other passages of Scripture. But they, they, they state the reality that you and I are separated from God because of our sinfulness. That's the whole reason why Jesus came, was to, to make payment for our sins so that we could be in right relationship with Him. So, when it comes to God's ideal, God's plan, God's standard, God's plan for sexual orientation... Quite honestly, his word is pretty clear on it. God's plan is, is that, that uh, sexual orientation means one man and one woman in a covenant marital relationship. Uh, I, I, there's several passages of Scripture perhaps we could address, but we'll just go to one today. Romans chapter 1, um, Paul is addressing a lot of things that... that He's explaining to the church in Rome uh, people's uh, sinfulness and their depravity and, and where that leads them and that sort of thing. But specifically in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 27, it says, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. Now listen to me. That's what I'm saying. Expect that idea what I said a minute. Ultimately, it only matters what God says. It doesn't matter what, what I think or, or BJ thinks or you think or society even thinks. It only matters about the truth of God. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of 
the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That's why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserved. Is uh, homosexual practice... Contrary to God's will for a person's life, is it a sin? Yes, it is. But let me add this. So is sexual relationship between a man and a woman when it is outside of the confines of God's plan, which is marriage. That's sin as well. And so is gossip. And so is lying. And so is stealing. All of those things are sinful and separate us from God. Now, having said that, I've said that a lot today, haven't I? (laughs) And having said that, um, there are some sins that perhaps carry greater consequences. Sexual sin in general, I believe, is one of those because of the consequences it can have for us physically, emotionally, psychologically, and societally because of the breakdown of the family. But the point is, God desires relationship with everyone. Cross-culture's position would be that anyone would be would be welcome to come into this place and learn of God's plan and God's desire for their lives. But God's ultimate plan as far as sexual orientation is concerned, one man, one woman in a covenant relationship. That's the kind of sex that God ordained and that God said was actually very good in his creation. And that's Q&A for today.